0: I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in First Timothy with Easter. Then last week we had a guest preacher, and so we're back in the book of First Timothy. December 20th, 1987, marks the worst shipwreck in world history. Off the coast of the Philippines, there was a passenger ferry... It was called the Donna Paz, and it was leaving, you know, the Philippines are a bunch of islands. It was leaving for the city of Manila, and it was only supposed to hold 1,000 passengers. Because it was close to Christmas, they made an exception, and they crammed 4,000 people on that ferry. And about 10 o'clock at night, the ship's officers were drinking alcohol and watching TV, and they put somebody else in charge, an apprentice, to navigate through this very narrow strait, It was called the Tabla Strait. And coming through the strait the other direction was a 629-ton oil tanker called the Vector, carrying 8,000 barrels of oil. Well, the two ships collided, and to this day, they really don't know the reason why. But it was a massive explosion. The two ships sank quickly. There were only 24 survivors The death toll was 4,386, which makes it the deadliest shipwreck in history, twice as fatal as the sinking of the Titanic. Now, why do I bring up the worst shipwreck in history? Well, in today's passage, Paul's not afraid to name names, and he's going to name two men who made a shipwreck of their faith which is a spiritual catastrophe, spiritual consequences. Now, I know it's been a while since we've been in 1 Timothy, so let's retrace our steps. Paul charges Timothy, this young pastor, he's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul says, I charge you to deal with these false teachers. Timothy, you've got to deal with them quickly. They're, they're causing problems in the church. And then... Paul takes a detour and he gets wrapped up in the gospel. And Paul says, listen, I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent opponent, but God showed me mercy. And if we looked a few weeks ago, when you've been humbled by God's mercy, you can't help but erupt into worship and in praise. And so Paul goes on this digression of worshiping God for his mercy and his grace. And then today he gets back in our text to this issue of these men that were causing problems in the church and we finally find the identity of these men we know what their names are so let's pick up if you have your bible in 1st Timothy chapter 1 we're going to look at verses 18 and through 20 this morning paul writes this charge i entrust to you Timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, you guys ready to go home now? All understood, know what's going on here. Here's the main point of this passage. Here's what Paul's getting at. You need God's grace to engage in constant spiritual warfare. Now, I want you to think about the context here of of how Paul's writing. Paul has spent just the previous verses talking about God's grace, God's abundant mercy, how God's patience has been toward him. And so we need grace not only for our initial salvation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But we need grace for our ongoing sanctification. And here's the reason why. The Christian life is one of a battle. And notice what Paul tells Timothy there, the main verb in the passage. It's a military term, wage the good warfare, fight the good fight. Timothy is a young pastor. You can't idly sit by. It's going to be a spiritual battle, especially when you're dealing with false teachers. And so Paul reminds Timothy of God's grace, God's mercy, God's patience. And then what does Paul say to Timothy? He says, listen, Timothy, This is in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, what does this mean, these prophecies that were previously made about Timothy? Well, as we continue to read in 1 Timothy, we find out in 1 Timothy 4.14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Many years before, the elders of the church in Ephesus quote-unquote, ordained Timothy to gospel ministry. He was set apart by the church, set apart by the elders. They surrounded him, and Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, remember your call to ministry. Remember that time when the elders gathered around you, they affirmed your calling, they laid hands on you, and they set you apart to be a preacher of the gospel. And so here's Paul's point. Whenever a pastor faces extreme difficulty, it is very crucial for that pastor to remember his calling to remember that God has called us you see God has sovereignly called me to pastoral ministry and I cannot quit you know why I cannot quit because God has his sovereign call upon my life and so when you go through those times and I'm sure uh, Pastor Dustin feels the same way being called to ministry when when a pastor goes through those times of difficulties when you go through those times where you want to quit when, when the spiritual battle is ramped up when things are going not so good the one t- sometimes the only thing that can keep you going is that call on your life where you remember back to that day when God called you to the ministry and I like Timothy had a council of men surround me and lay hands upon me when I was ordained. And I look back to that day and I think that was the day that men of God affirmed God's calling on my life. And so I can attest to you over 25 years in pastoral ministry, it is a spiritual battle. But I'm not talking to pastors this morning. The Christian life is one of a spiritual battle. But Pastor Sean, that's for you to deal with. That's for Pastor Dustin to deal with. That's for the elders to deal with. I don't, I don't want to deal with spiritual warfare. I don't want to fight the good fight of faith. That's for you guys that are in professional ministry. And as my dad always said, there's a good Greek word for that. And you know what that Greek word is. It's called baloney. Okay? Perhaps you didn't want to hear that you are engaged in a spiritual battle to fight the good Fight of faith. Now, yes, this is addressed to Timothy, the pastor, but it's addressed to all of us as believers. We're called to fight the good fight of faith. So what I want to do this morning is some, ask some questions of this passage of Scripture. Let's ask some key questions. So here's the first question I want us to ask. First is why? Why must we fight the good fight of faith? Well, other places, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. So he repeats it again in 1 Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. And then Paul, at the very end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So we're called to fight, but the question is Why? Let me give you the bottom line answer. We daily do battle with three real enemies. I call it the unholy trinity. Not the holy trinity, the unholy trinity. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Every day, the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to assault you, and you may have to do spiritual battle. So let's think about the world This evil world system is influencing you. And I don't know if you know this or not, parents. The world is discipling your children, whether you know it or not. Social media, TikTok, pop media influencers, musicians, athletes, movie stars, politicians. The world, sadly, is shaping our thinking. We are being influenced by the world. And 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We do battle with the world system. But not only the world, but The flesh. That sin that still lives inside of us, even though we've been saved by grace, we still have to battle what's called the flesh or indwelling sin. Galatians 5, 16-17, But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, and they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's this internal battle between the Holy Spirit in you and your remaining flesh that wants to do battle. It's going to be constant. So you battle the world, you battle your own flesh, and then we battle Satan, the devil. Ephesians 6:10 through12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes. The schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are fighting a cosmic battle against the powers of darkness. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are coming in at you hot every day, and they want to destroy your soul. So the Christian life is one of constant warfare. I read this earlier during our time of confession, but let me read it again. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4. For though we walk in the flesh, that is, we walk according to just this human nature, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Timothy, and by extension all of us, fight the good fight of faith. Why? The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to attack you every day. It's going to be a battle. All right, now let's ask the second question this morning. The first question was why. The second question is how. So how do you fight the good fight? Well, when you get into the Greek text here and you study the grammar of how the original language is worded, and you can kind of see this in your English translations, Paul gives two means or methods in how you do this. So if you look there at verse 19... Holding, and he lists two things there faith and a good conscience. This reminds us back up in verse 5. So just go back up to verse 5 for a moment. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Almost the same wording there. Holding faith and a good conscience. Now, that word holding is in the present tense. It's important in the Greek language. If something's in the present tense, that means it's ongoing action. So Paul says these are things to be ongoingly doing in your life. And so what are these two things? Faith and a good conscience. So here's the first. You must have consistent or constant trust in Christ. Constant trust in Christ. In other words, are you looking outside of yourself to Jesus for strength? Are your eyes permanently fixed on him? Are you growing in your faith? Are you constantly leaning on Jesus? Augustine, the early church father, often talked about the propensity of humans to curve in upon ourselves. The human heart wants to look at ourselves. We want to look, how can I deal with issues? How, how can I solve my problems? How can I be the source of my strength? When, when, we, when we're engaged in the battle, it's always, let me turn in on myself. And Paul says, no, don't look inward at yourself, look outward in constant trust to Jesus. In other words, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, hold on to Jesus, look to Jesus. That's what it means to stand in the full armor of God, by the way, just put on Jesus and walk in Jesus and stand in the power of Jesus. So that's the first thing we're to do, is to stand in the power of the gospel. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So a constant trust in Jesus. But the second thing he says here is a good conscience. Now, what does that mean? Second, it means this. You must have a consistent lifestyle of integrity. Are you walking in holiness? See, here's what a good conscience means. A good conscience means this. When you evaluate your life, you sit back and you look at your life, you can say, not that you're perfect or that you never sin, but consistently... You're walking in integrity. You're consistently walking in holiness. You cannot separate what a person believes and how a person behaves. There's no such thing as a Christian who believes the gospel and lives a different way. You can't separate those two. What you believe and how you behave are intrinsically tied together and that's how you fight the spiritual battle so it's one of faith trust but it's also one of holiness of life integrity of life a good conscience now let's ask the third question it's a two-part question who are these false teachers and what have they done okay paul's not afraid to name names I, i don't ever want my name you don't want your name to be in the bible if it's listed in a bad way especially when you've made shipwreck of your faith. Look at verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, who are these dudes? Most scholars believe they were probably former elders in the church or former leaders. We know a little bit about Hymenaeus. He's listed twice. He's in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. So listen to how he's described in 2 Timothy 2, 17 through 18. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, there he's listed again, and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Spreading like gangrene, swerving from the truth, upsetting households. That's Hymenaeus. Okay, Alexander's listed a second time again in 2 Timothy 4, 14-15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Two men who were opponents, who were false teachers, whose division was spreading like gangrene. And notice what Paul says, they've rejected. To reject means to, to to cast aside violently like I'm I'm totally getting rid of this. Now what have they rejected? Look, look at carefully what your Bible says. By rejecting this. Does your Bible say this? What's the this? Well, what did Paul just say? What are those two things of how we fight the good battle? They've rejected a trust in Christ and they've rejected a good conscience. They've got a bad conscience. They're not walking in integrity. They were trusting in themselves as opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were not walking in holiness. Their conscience had become seared as with a hot iron. Paul would say this later on in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Wow, don't we see that today? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Their consciences have gotten so bad that it's like a hot iron, it's seared, it's numb. They're dead to the things of the Lord. Now, what have they done? They have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, this is the only time that word shipwreck is used besides a literal shipwreck. It literally means to break a ship into multiple pieces. Now think about a shipwreck. There's many ways that a ship can wreck. Like I said earlier, two two vessels can collide. Or you can sink. Or you can hit like a rock or a coral reef. No matter how you describe it, it is disastrous to have a shipwreck. And you can picture the graphic imagery that Paul is using here. It's kind of like these guys, their faith is like circling down the drain. They're they're being swallowed up in their pride and in their false teaching. And their faith is shattered into a thousand pieces. Now, what in the world does it mean to hand these men over to Satan? I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But what were they guilty of? What were they doing? Paul says there at the end of verse 20, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to Blaspheme. Well, what does it mean to blaspheme? It means they were dirtying the name of Christ, they were twisting the gospel, they were destroying the church's testimony. They had abandoned that constant trust in Christ and that consistent lifestyle and integrity. They were not holding to a good faith and to a good conscience. They were become so corrupt, so twisted, so arrogant that they were causing problems in the church. And John Calvin has said this, and I love this quote, A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. You can potentially have your faith shipwrecked by a bad conscience. Now, why do people reject the faith? Why do people make a shipwreck of their faith? Now, I do not believe the Bible teaches that a person that's truly saved can lose his or her salvation or that you can use your free will to walk away. If God sovereignly got you in, he's going to sovereignly keep you to the end. So we don't believe that. But why do people make shipwreck of their faith? those that were never saved in the first place. Now, there's a lot of reasons, but let me just give you one this morning. And I think this is something that our nation and our churches and you and I desperately need to hear. Here's the ultimate reason why a lot of people make shipwreck of their faith. Ultimately, people do not fear God. They don't fear God. Job 28, 28. And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, here's what happens. You don't just make shipwreck of your faith one day. You wake up and like, I'm shipwrecked. You drift. It's a slow, imperceptible drift where you're drifting further and further away. And one of the things that happens when you don't fear God, you begin to fear man. And what does it mean to fear man? When you fear man, that means that you begin to compromise on the gospel. You're ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to stand on the gospel because it's too offensive to our modern day sensibilities. We're going to water it down. And when you begin to water down the gospel, when you begin to water down the truth, you're beginning to drift into that rejection. But not just watering down the gospel, but think about your behavior. Remember I said you cannot separate what you believe from how you behave. You begin to make shipwreck of your faith when you begin to give in to peer pressure and sin in ways you thought you would never sin. Remember, how do you fight the good fight? What are those two things? Constant trust in Jesus, consistent lifestyle of integrity fear of man takes your eyes off Jesus and puts it on others. You're living in what other people think of you. You don't want to look shameful. You don't want to look bad. You want to fit in. And so you're wanting to please man as opposed to fearing God. So here's the issue. These men were so divisive, so rebellious, so unrepentant. Their heresy, their division was spreading like gangrene. They were blaspheming that Paul had to do something drastic. He had to hand them over to Satan. Now, what in the world does that mean? Let me explain to you what that means. It's a metaphorical way of saying they had been excommunicated from the church. They had gone the full process of church discipline where they were removed. And so here's the issue. What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? What it means is this. When a person acts fundamentally like an unbeliever in unrepentant, rebellious sin, and they're removed from the covering of the church, the protection of the church, the fellowship of the church, they're being placed back out into the realm of Satan to be dealing with the natural consequences of their sin. They no longer be under the protection of the church family. So how does the Bible describe the life of a non-Christian before salvation? Colossians 1.13 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Satan is the king of darkness. He's the God of this age. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if a person becomes so rebellious, so heretical, So divisive, like these two men were, Paul in his apostolic authority said, I have removed them from the church because they're infecting it. They need to be handed over to Satan. They need to be excommunicated. They need to go back into the realm that they're acting like because fundamentally they're acting like nonbelievers and they've got a face basically reaping what they've sown out in the world. If they want to act like a lost person, let's kick them out of the church and let them be like a lost person. Because the purity of the church is at stake. Paul says, if these men are allowed to say, they will infect the church like gangrene. Now, what's gangrene? I don't, I'm not a doctor, but I know it's not a good thing. Isn't it where it, like eats up your limbs and things like that? It spreads quickly, like cancer? Gangrene. Now, this is, this is talking about church discipline. Most churches do not practice church discipline the way the Bible prescribes us to do that. Jesus gives us the procedure. In Matthew 18, 15-17, Jesus gives us the steps. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Don't need to go any further. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidences of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, okay, you take it to the third step. Take it to the church. Gather the church together. Here's the fourth step. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, Jesus says if, if, the, if he's gone or she's gone before the church and is not willing to repent even before the church, they are to be excommunicated, be t- treated like a Gentile or a tax collector, i.e. excommunicated from the church. They need to be removed. Now, this was happening at the church in Corinth. You guys remember what happened in Corinth. A man was having an incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law, and they were happy about it. They were kind of excited about it. They were celebrating it. And Paul says, wait a minute, time out. You guys should be grieving over this. And then I want you to notice what Paul says. He, he almost uses the same language to talk about excommunicating this unrepentant man. 1 Corinthians 5, 4-5. through When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. That's the incestuous man, the man that was having incest with his mother-in-law. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You need to get rid of him. Titus three ten through 11 As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Now this is where we need to be very, very, very careful. Any time a church takes that drastic step to excommunicate a person, it is never vengeful, it is never mean-spirited, it is never to be done in a malicious manner, because ultimately the purpose of doing it is redemptive. You want that person to repent. You want that person to learn the error of their ways and to come back. And that's what Paul says there in the Greek text, in verse 20, when he says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That word learn there is a redemptive type of learning. Not a punitive or vengeful, but a, that they would, they would repent. And even Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If someone has drastically been excommunicated from the church, our hope should always be that they would repent and come back to the fold you see here's what it means to hand someone over to Satan let me just put it real practical your hope as a church family is because this person is infecting us and we can't let it go on if we remove this person and they go back out into the world they will be so miserable they will be so They'll be so miserable reaping what they've sown that they will grieve to the point that they're moved to repentance, that they want to come back and be part of the fellowship because they realized the sin that they had committed and they're so miserable out there in the world. Now here's the bottom line with a person who's been unrepentant, stubborn, that's caused significant problems in the church and has been kicked out, if you will. If they are genuinely saved, God will discipline them and bring them back. Like the prodigal son. The prodigal son was sitting in the pig slop and said, what am I doing here? He came to his senses and he went back to his father. If the person is truly saved and they've been excommunicated to that drastic of a point, if they're truly saved, they will come to their senses, they will repent, they'll be miserable, and they'll come back and the church should welcome them back if they're truly repentant. Or, Here's the sad part. They may never come back because they've proved out over the long term that they never were saved in the first place. They were a false convert, they were a pretender, and they proved that they never were saved. So, really, the purity of the gospel's on the line when you excommunicate someone because. They're infecting the purity of the church, but they're also damaging their own soul. And so the only way to get rid of it is to remove them. Now, here's the theological question that is left unanswered that a lot of scholars don't know. I have a personal opinion, and again, it's opinion. Here's the question. Did these men reject the faith in the sense that they, it was permanent? They, they, they made shipwreck of, of their faith, and it was a permanent. There was no hope for them to come back. I think because of the Greek verb used there, I think it's Permanent. I think they remained in defiance. We really don't know, but I want you to remember something. Who was a blasphemer? Look in this passage of Scripture that we just looked at. Go back up. What does Paul say in verse 13? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the trustworthy saying is deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save the sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Paul was the worst of sinners and God saved him. So we should always hold out hope for the most flagrant, rebellious, pernicious sinner to be shaken to their core, come to their senses, come under conviction of the Holy Spirit, and come back to Christ. God's grace is so powerful, it can reach someone who has been excommunicated and draw them back through His sovereign grace. See, the bottom line is we all need grace. We need grace to be saved. We need grace to repent. We need grace for spiritual warfare if we're going to fight this fight. The Christian life is a life of warfare. We are called to fight the good fight, to battle spiritually against the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 Timothy 4.16 is addressed to a pastor, but I think the principle is the same for us. So 1 Timothy 4.16 says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearer. Now, Paul's saying to Timothy explicitly, as a pastor, keep a watch on your life. You've got to be a godly man of character, Timothy, as a pastor. And then keep an eye on your teaching. Don't be a false teacher. Preach the word faithfully. But I think the principle is the same for us. Let me just ask you the question. Do you keep a close life watch on your life? Are you walking in integrity? And do you keep a close life on the teaching? Or do you keep a close life on your belief? Close watch on your belief, on the doctrine, on your faith in Christ. Do you have a good faith and a good conscience? You see, we need grace to fight the fight. And God will give us that grace. And God will help us fight the fight. We can trust in his provision because I I don't want to ever forget this. Who was the greatest fighter of the good fight that ever lived? Jesus. Jesus. fought the good fight with perfection. He battled the devil for 40 days in the wilderness and was the only one that could do that and come out victorious. Jesus battled the powers of evil on the cross and crushed the head of Satan. He's the only one that could do that. And Jesus conquered the grave and rose again. He's the only one that can do that. So anybody here that thinks they can win the spiritual warfare, you cannot. Jesus is the only one that did it perfectly. He is the one that fought the good fight with perfection. But here's the good news. He's on your side. He's your savior. You can trust in him. Because when you trust in Jesus, his power becomes your power. His victory becomes your victory. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His holiness becomes your holiness. And God gives you everything you need to fight the battle because Jesus is the one who fought it first and he's still fighting it for you. He gives you everything you need. Christian, don't ever say, I don't have what I need. He's given you everything you need. 2 Peter 1 3. His divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's given us all things. You and I need grace to engage in constant spiritual warfare. And I want you to leave here with confidence because you're going to face a battle, some of you, the moment you get into your car. If you can't say amen, as Voddie would say, you better say ouch. Some of you like, know what it's like. We get in the car and immediately the spiritual warfare starts. Maybe it started before you even got here this morning in the car. See, here's what's going to happen. You and I are going to leave this place And there's safety in numbers, there's safety in a worship service, and it's a great time of singing and being together. But the moment you walk out that door, what are the three enemies going to do? The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to come attack you. That's just the reality of the Christian life. You're going to get assaulted. So as we leave this place, let us stand in the power of Jesus to fight the good Let us constantly trust in Jesus and let us consistently walk in integrity as we keep our eyes fixed on Him. Don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus, who's already won the battle on the cross and the resurrection, but still fights the battle for you every day. Trust in Him. Walk in Him. Live in His victory alone. All right, let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. In heaven, we definitely need your grace to fight the good fight of faith. And I'm sure if we were to talk to one another at an extended length of time, we could all give testimony about how we've been attacked over, over time by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Lord, we know we have three real enemies that assault us all the time. And we can be weary from the battle. There's times where we want to give up. There's times where we want to give in. Maybe we were sold a bill of goods that the Christian life is basically easy, an easy path as opposed to a spiritual battle. But Lord, we come to you today with the confidence to know that Jesus, because you fought the battle and you died on the cross and you rose again, you still fight those battles for us. And all we're called to do is just to stand in you, to keep our eyes fixed on you, to have that consistent trust in you, and also to walk in integrity, to keep a close watch on our life, our lifestyle, and a close watch on our faith. So Lord, help us to walk out of this place with confidence, knowing that you are our victorious Savior. Lord, help us as a church, if the time ever comes, where we would have to deal with a divisive person. And Lord, we pray that there never comes a day where we have to take such drastic measures. So Lord, please protect the purity and unity of this church. Father, I'm thankful that over the years we've we've had great unity, we've had great purity of faith. And Lord, you've protected us, and for that we are thankful. But we can never let our guard down, Lord, because we know that there are always wolves in sheep's clothing. And there are people that want to attack the church. Lord, help us as elders and leaders to be vigilant, to be watchful. Lord, I pray for the congregation to be vigilant and watchful. Lord, we all need to have our eyes open to make sure the truth of your word is always championed at this church. So would you go before us, Lord, help us to go out in the full armor of God. Help us to go out in the gospel today. Help us to rely upon your grace as we fight the good fight of faith. And help us to remember, Lord, we're not fighting other people. We're fighting spiritual forces of wickedness. So, Lord, we need to have the compassion and the respect and the gentleness to do this in ways that glorify you. So help us to stand strong as we leave this place for your glory alone. Help us to wage the good warfare. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.